The Federal Reserve's monetary policy has received a great deal of media attention uh, over the course of the last month, particularly last month. Now, granted, not as much as the presidential elections and certainly not as much as the performance of NFL referees. We didn't get that much at media attention, but um, we did get a, a good amount last uh, month. Now, you might think I'd mind, but I'm okay uh, with all of this attention uh, because monetary policy does play an important role in providing a, an environment uh, for people to work and save and invest, and how we do that uh, can be important. But the role of monetary policy is often misunderstood, I think. And so in my remarks, I'll talk about both what it can achieve and what it, it cannot achieve uh, in, for our economy. Um, I, I need to emphasize this is a standard disclaimer that Federal Reserve officials utter at the beginning of talks like this. Um, the remarks uh, I express, the views I express are my own and do not necessarily represent those of my colleagues on the uh, Federal Open Market Committee, but you probably would have figured that out from some of my votes lately. So what does monetary policy do? So let's start off first things first. Over the long haul, monetary policy des determines the purchasing power of money. That that's its fundamental role. The Federal Reserve has an effective monopoly on the supply of certain critically important monetary assets, namely currency and bank reserves, the, the accounts banks keep with the Federal Reserve banks. That supply, together with the demand for those assets, determines the value. That is to say, determines the, the purchasing power of money. Excessive supply leads to excessive inflation. That is, a rise in the overall price level. Insufficient supply leads to deflation. That is, a fall in the overall price level. This simple, simple logic goes back centuries and should be pretty intuitive to most people. Conversely, um, so as a result, excessive inflation um, is legitimately uh, the fault of the, a central bank. Conversely, we can be uh, – maybe take some credit when inflation is low and stable. So how have we been doing lately? Well, some of you in the room probably remember the 1970s. Uh, this is a time when inflation was fairly high on average um, and at times reached double-digit rates, uh, 10, 12, 13 percent. We fought hard to bring inflation down under control in the 1980s and, and 1990s. And over the last 20 years, inflation has averaged 2 percent um, 2, 2 per year, to, to be precise, 2.05 percent. Uh, but who's calculating hundredths, right? Um, so 2% two, 2 per year over 20 years since um, 1993, uh, a fairly remarkable record. Now, to be sure, inflation has varied uh, from year to year, month to month. Um, you know, we can't get it right at 2% every single month at an annual rate. Uh, it's gone as high as 4%. It's been as low as negative 1% temporarily. Um, but these swings have evened out over time, and inflation has averaged 2%, generally gravitates back to 2%. In fact, over the last three years, inflation has averaged precisely uh, 2%. Now, this record of low and stable inflation over the last two decades is a substantial improvement over what came before it. And that needs to be kept in mind when thinking about monetary policy in recent years. 
The Federal Open Market Committee is the body within the Federal Reserve System that's responsible for conducting monetary policy. We call it the FOMC. Um, And it issued a very important statement in January of this year. Uh, It was a statement about our longer-run goals and policy strategy. In that document, the committee stated for the first time that an inflation rate of 2% as measured by the annual change in the price index for personal consumption expenditures, that's the, the best inflation index or measure that we have, an inflation rate of 2% is the one that's most consistent over the longer run with the Federal Reserve's statutory mandates, What the charge we've been given by Congress. This confirmed a long-held belief among Fed watchers in the marketplace that 2% constituted the FOMC's implicit, sort of unofficial target for inflation. Now, I begin this – it's fairly unusual to begin an economic talk uh, you know, about the economic outlook with a discussion of inflation. That's not the usual approach even among Federal Reserve officials who are preoccupied with inflation. This might be due to the stability in inflation over the last two, 20 years that I've talked about. But I did this uh, to emphasize that the behavior of inflation is fundamentally attributable to the actions of a central bank while growth – and labor market conditions are affected by a wide variety of factors that are outside the Fed's control. This is a theme I'll return to a couple of times in in today's talk. So let's move on. Let's talk about uh, growth and the growth outlook. The Great Recession that we just went through in 2008 to early 2009 officially bottomed out in the second quarter, June of 2009. But the expansion in economic activity since then has been disappointing. Real gross domestic product, it's called GDP, Um, this is the best measure, broadest measure of economic activity, has grown at an average annual rate of 2.2% during that recovery uh, since June of 2009. Labor market conditions have been particularly disheartening. We lost over 8 million jobs in the recession and the immediate aftermath. Since bottoming out in early 2010, we've added four and a quarter million jobs But that leaves us still far from a a complete recovery in labor markets. This rate of job growth has been uneven over time. Uh, Thus, job growth averaged 226,000 jobs per month in the first quarter of this year. The rate fell to 67,000 jobs per month in the second quarter of this year. But it rebounded to 146,000 jobs per month in the third quarter of this year. This recent rate of job growth, 146,000, is fairly close to the average rate of job growth um, for this recovery. And that suggests that what we saw in the second quarter was a temporary slowdown, just like the first quarter was a temporary surge in job growth. So we've got a recovery that's sluggish on average, but we see bursts and then uh, soft patches. These labor market indicators are especially noteworthy because Congress requires that monetary policy should, and I'm going to quote here from the Federal Reserve Act, promote effectively the goals of maximum employment, stable prices, and moderate long-term interest rates. Some observers of um, labor market conditions see them as prima facie evidence that the Fed is failing to promote effectively its goal of maximum employment. In particular, many people point to how high the unemployment rate is now by historic standards at 7.8%. 
but I'll argue that assessing monetary policy is much more complicated than simply noticing that certain indicators are far from their historical averages. Modern economies are buffeted by unanticipated disturbances, just as individual firms are are hit by unanticipated developments affecting demand or um, their, their supply costs or the like. Even at their best, economies take time to adjust to those shocks, uh, just as a firm takes time to work itself out of, of problems that, that arise due to unexpected developments. The pace of that adjustment at the level of the economy is in turn affected by a variety of frictions, we call them. This economist used this handle, frictions, um, to refer to the impediments to things working out the way they're going to work out right away. So frictions in the way firms, firms determine what's the best price to charge given the new demand and supply uh, conditions. Frictions in the process of searching for the most promising opportunities uh, for businesses to pl- deploy capital in a new way or, or, or take advantage of available labor resources. And frictions in the way workers and employers search for each other, try and find a good match, a good fit um, in the labor market. Monetary policy is simply unable to offset all the ways in which various frictions impede the economy's adjustment uh, to various shocks. The term maximum employment in our congressional mandate should therefore be thought of as the level of employment that currently can be achieved by the monetary policy authority, the central bank, taking into account the long-run objectives and the very real impediments to much more rapid adjustment to recent economic shocks. Consider the current uh, recession, the severe uh, downturn we've just been through. An unanticipated decline in residential construction resulted in an oversupply of labor and capital in that sector. Redeploying those resources productively has been difficult and time-consuming for our economy. Retraining is often required for workers to find employment in other sectors. I was talking about this a little bit this morning. Capital investments are required in order to absorb the newly available pool of of labor into other sectors. In the absence of further shocks, the economy's best response is likely to have unemployment worked down gradually over time. How gradually is the key question. It's unlikely we would be able to restore unemployment rate to its long-run level uh, immediately, within a quarter or two. But at the same time, there are significant social costs associated with delaying the recovery in labor market conditions too long. Uh, The cost in terms of the families that are affected is just too high. The key point here, though, is simply that observing a high unemployment rate does not by itself imply that the Fed's monetary policy is failing to comply with its congressional mandate nor does it necessarily mean that monetary policy needs to do more to achieve its goals. The FOMC itself was very clear about this in that January statement of its longer-run policy uh, goals that I mentioned earlier. Now, I want to quote a little small passage from that statement since it says it well. The maximum level of employment is largely determined by non-monetary factors, that is to say things outside the control of the central bank, that affect the structure and dynamics of the labor market. These factors may change over time and may not be directly measurable. Consequently, it would not be appropriate to specify a fixed goal for employment. 
Rather, the committee's policy decisions must be informed by assessments of the maximum level of employment, recognizing that such assessments are necessarily uncertain and subject to revisions. The committee considers a wide range of indicators in making these assessments. So this is a fairly lengthy digression here, but in the present policy climate, I thought it was important. It's fairly abstract. Let me get down to some specifics about the current environment. I think there are several factors that are impeding a more rapid recovery in labor market conditions right now. The first is the housing market. We are There we are still coping with a large inventory overhang uh, that remains from the, the pre-recession boom, essentially overbuilding in the, the housing boom that preceded this recession. The housing sector has shown some encouraging signs of late uh, with home prices and construction improving uh, this year. But housing investment has shrunk to a much smaller portion of our overall economy than had typically been the case before this recession. And given that inventory overhang, residential residential investment spending on housing construction is likely to remain below pre-recession levels for a considerable period of time. Second and related was uh, the significant shift in economic activity away from residential construction and the related supply industries. The rapid loss of jobs in these industries was layered on top of a longer run sort of ongoing sectoral shifts uh, in our economy, should be familiar to people in this region. And together they resulted in large inflows in this contraction into the ranks of the unemployed. Large number of workers were dumped into the pool of unemployed. The result was an adverse shift in the skill profile of available workers. And that's intensified uh, some frictions, um, the, the reallocation, the skill mismatch frictions that they're always there in labor markets, uh, but now they're, in, they're a particular force that seem to be hindering uh, the clearing of labor markets. Third factor impeding uh, a more rapid recovery in labor market conditions is that the Great Recession that we've just been through appears to have made many consumers more cautious and less willing to spend relative to their income and wealth than they were before the recession. Prior to the recent recession, American households experienced a two-decade run, starting in 84 or so, uh, with just two mild recessions, and in those recessions, job losses uh, were relatively limited. In contrast, the decline in income and wealth in this most recent uh, contraction were far greater in magnitude. As a result, consumers appear to have become far more apprehensive about their future income prospects. So while consumer spending has been growing during this recovery, and we got a good, a good uh, report on consumer spending for the month of September just this morning, while that's true, um, the tempered pace of that growth um, has limited the overall pace of the expansion relative to previous recoveries. Finally, um, our business contacts frequently emphasize that uncertainty is at a crippling level and has caused them to delay hiring and investment commitments. We were talking about this at our table earlier. Well, there are multiple sources of uncertainty that one could cite, including the situation in Europe. The most widely mentioned source of uncertainty is the nation's fiscal policy. Here I'll mention two aspects of the federal fiscal situation. 
One is uh, what's called the fiscal cliff. This is a combination of spending cuts and tax increases that are going to occur automatically uh, at the beginning of next year if Congress fails to act to prevent them. The total size of these changes is such that should they all take effect, the economy is likely to contract and may even move back into recession. The second relevant aspect of the federal fiscal outlook is the longer run imbalances between taxes and spending. According to projections by the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, the deficit, which is now currently over $1 trillion at an annual pace, that deficit's likely to decline somewhat for a few years, but then move higher, both in dollar terms and as a fraction of gross domestic product, GDP. This implies, this is an arithmetical implication, so this implies that the stock of the outstanding federal debt is going to go up faster than GDP goes up. So the ratio of debt to GDP, debt to our income, is going to rise without bound. This is not a feasible scenario. It won't happen. It can't happen. It just can't persist indefinitely. At some point, Congress is going to have to align taxes and spending. And whatever one's views about the advisability of various things that are on the table, the set of policy changes that are likely to be plausible, that are likely to be considered, that are going to be proposed, affect almost every American consumer and business in a meaningful way. And not knowing which of those proposals will be adopted a wide array of economic decision makers are likely to be affected and you can see why they would sit on the sidelines. So I think uncertainty is likely to dampen U.S. growth until there's greater clarity around legislation Congress and the president are likely to adopt. But merely avoiding the fiscal cliff is not going to be enough. Fiscal uncertainty is going to continue to restrain growth, I believe, until Washington adopts a long-run plan uh, that restores fiscal balance uh, at the federal level. So taking this all into account, much of the regional, much of the regional, what, excuse me, much of the recent uh, sluggishness um, in growth seems understandable. Econo- economies take time to recover from severe shocks. In fact, if you look back at how a range of advanced economies typically behave after recessions that are associated with housing slumps, you find that the current U.S. recovery is actually not out of the ordinary. It's tracking along those recoveries pretty well. What's exceptional about the current situation is the depth of the contraction phase of this recovery, of this uh, episode, not the pace of the recovery we're in. So where do we go from here? My best guess guess is that growth is going to firm uh, later next year and continue to improve beyond that. Uh, Even though the recession in Europe poses risks for this outlook, I think those risks are likely to dissipate next year as European leaders uh, work through the adjustments that are necessary to create, essentially creating a new fiscal regime uh, for uh, the European area. As U.S. labor markets begin to heal, I think household confidence is slowly going to firm, and I think that'll bolster consumer spending gradually over the next couple of years. The fundamental prospects for longer-term U.S. economic growth, I think, remain quite promising. 
I think they're likely to reassert themselves in the years ahead. We have a proven ability to generate advances in scientific knowledge and commercial innovation. The flexibility and resilience of our markets, along with a relatively well-educated populace, makes this an excellent market in which to implement innovations. Our major challenge over the long haul is to deepen the knowledge and skills of our people because growing human capital is fundamental to improving our standards of living. So what's the role of the Fed's monetary policy in this outlook? Our first responsibility, as I said, is to keep inflation low and stable. This allows businesses and consumers to make economic decisions without worrying about inflation. The FOMC took an important step to solidify confidence in our commitment to price stability with the January statement that I mentioned, which formalized uh, our long-run inflation goal of 2%. I strongly supported my colleague's decision, colleague's decision to issue that statement. I was strongly on board with that. I have, I have however, dissented um, from all six FOMC meetings this year. Let me explain my reasoning and what I dissented about. At each meeting this year, the FOMC has voted to leave the federal funds rate near zero. And in each case, I supported that decision uh, because the economy is, is growing slowly. And at times like that, it's appropriate to keep interest rates low in order to avoid inflation falling and avoid the possibility of deflation. But the committee also issued um, what people people call this forward guidance. That's the, the, the phrase of uh, in the marketplace. They issued forward guidance. They, that, In other words, language in the statement saying uh, that economic conditions are likely to warrant a federal funds rate near zero, so for at least several years. Now, the current version says until at least mid-2015. So they name a – pick a place on the calendar and say – Interest rates are likely to be low until then. Now, I've objected to that language because I think it's a highly imperfect way to communicate about future policy. I agree. We, we need to do everything we can to explain to Americans how we're likely to conduct policy in the future. We don't want to have unnecessary uncertainty about how we conduct policy in the future affecting people. Um, but this is a highly imperfect way to do that. First off, it could be misinterpreted as meaning that the committee believes the economy will be weaker than people had thought. Um, by itself, that, would ha- that could have a dampening effect on economic activity right now, and I don't think that's what was intended. In fact, I know that's what w- wasn't what was intended. On the other hand, it could be misinterpreted as suggesting a diminished commitment to keeping inflation at 2%. I vigorously oppose, I would vigorously oppose adopting that stance of diminishing our commitment to keeping inflation at 2%. And I don't think my colleagues on the FOMC intended that interpretation either. In addition, at the September meeting of the FOMC, they decided to begin increasing the size of our balance sheet by purchasing agency-issued mortgage-backed uh, securities, or MBS. I believe the benefits of that action are likely to be small because it's unlikely to improve growth without also causing an unwelcome increase in inflation. At the same time, adding to our balance sheet increases the risks uh, that we're going to have to run when the time comes to withdraw monetary stimulus and reduce the size of our balance sheet. It it, It makes it more likely that we're likely to have to move rapidly when the time comes 
uh, to normalize monetary policy and begin raising rates. And that, that increases the, the riskiness of, of how we do things then. Finally, if we are going to purchase more assets, and I, I think there are times where more asset purchases might be warranted. I mean, I could envision circumstances in which it's a, a good thing to do. But if you're going to purchase assets uh, as a Federal Reserve, <clears throat> it would be better to purchase treasury securities alone rather than purchase agency mortgage-backed securities. Buying MBS, mortgage-backed securities, instead of buying treasuries, it, that may mean lower interest rates for conforming home mortgages. But if that's true, it means higher interest rates for other borrowers compared to just buying treasuries alone. And so by buying MBS instead of treasuries, we're distorting credit market flows. We're distorting the flow of credit to different sectors in the economy. And I think that's an inappropriate role for the Federal Reserve. That principle was recognized in a joint statement of the Department of Treasury and the Federal Reserve on March 23, 2009. I'll quote from this. This is a very short one. Government decisions to influence the allocation of credit are the province of fiscal authorities. In other words, Congress and the administration. And I, I go back to those mo critical monetary assets that we supply. When we buy assets, we increase the supply of those monetary assets to the economy. Our appropriate role is managing that supply of monetary assets. Um, buying assets is, is a, a byproduct of that, and I think it's inappropriate and an abuse of our independence for us to go choosing which sectors deserve more credit than others. So to sum up, I'm cautiously optimistic about the output and the outlook for growth in output and employment, uh, particularly in the longer run, uh, as our fundamental um, strength re reasserts itself. I have objected uh, to some specific monetary policy decisions. Uh, but given that, even given that, the fact that uh, inflation has stayed around 2%, I think, is evidence that monetary policy has done reasonably well in recent years. Maintaining this re record of success should be our focus in the years ahead at the Federal Reserve. So I thank you for your attention, and I'd be glad to take any questions if you have any. Thank you. Sure. That's a good good question, given what I, I, I spoke about in my remarks. Um, so there's some who argue that um, uh, that a single mandate would help the the Fed focus more. So I, I think that um, I think that that doing so might be less consequential than people think. I think of our best. I think of us as um, when I think about the employment mandate. I think our best contribution to employment is keeping inflation low and stable. Of not being a source of monetary instability for the economy, as we were in the 30s and the 1970s, as I, as I mentioned earlier. So I'm comfortable with Congress viewing us as um, 
you know, as doing what we do in part to um, contribute to uh, sustained increases in well-being and increased employment. I ju- the difficulty comes when there's that misunderstanding about the limits of what we can do ab- about employment because it's different than inflation. Central banks control inflation. If inflation goes wrong, it's the central bank's fault. Um, but uh, that's not necessarily true for employment. Our ability to affect employment for any sustained period of time is far limit more limited. Yes, ma'am. Yes, we are actually. Mm-hmm. That was in the minutes. Mm-hmm. Boy, both very sophisticated questions. Uh, someone's done their homework here in Roanoke. Um, so on the first question, um, it, 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 in three weeks after each meeting, we were – a little background. We, were, we um, published minutes, which are a, a summary of the discussion. Uh, nothing's – you know, no one names names, but it talks about what we talked about. And it talks about how um, on some issues there were different views, and it explains different views, and it does a very faithful job of that, I think. And in that, it, it um, that the, those minutes from the most recent meeting uh, revealed that there was some discussion about that forward guidance language and some degree of discomfort for exactly the reasons um, I laid out. In fact, these both these reasons appear in the minutes uh, as a record of um, the discussion then. Um, now, there, there has been some discussion for over a year now of an alternative approach, which would be to to communicate the conditions under which uh, we would keep rates low. Um, And that would have the advantage of of, uh, avoiding the appearance of making a – of having made an inflexible and non-contingent commitment. In other words, avoid people misunderstanding us as having – said, you know, no matter what happens, we're going to leave rates low till mid-2015 because um, the, the sense of the committee is that that date could change as depending on how the conditions come in, if growth's stronger or weaker, it could come earlier or later than that. Um, so it, it would emphasize the, the degree to which policy depends on the data as it comes in. Now, the trick is describing that dependence, and that's a tough cookie. That's tough to wrestle to the ground. Now we have um, we use an array of models in thinking about economic policy and some of them are really simple and in a simple model it's really easy to write down that contingency. You can do it with algebra. You can put the interest rate on the left hand side and you can put two variables on the right hand side. The real world is not like that. Uh, let me give you an example. Unemployment. And it's, it might be it might seem attractive to say we're going to keep the interest rates uh, exceptionally low as long as the unemployment rate is above some number. Pick your number, six and a half, seven, whatever it is. But the, the problem with that is that labor market conditions are more complicated than any one number can uh, convey. So 
we could have a strong burst of employment growth. But keep in mind, the labor force has fallen dramatically in this contraction and the recovery. And if, if job growth picked up, we could draw in people who are on the sidelines out of the labor force so we could have a pickup in job growth without a fall in the unemployment rate. Um, similarly, we could have the, the jobless rate fall on the other side just due to people leaving the labor force more rapidly. And so it, it, it's not the greatest thing to pin your it, – it just doesn't seem wise to pin everything on a single number in my view. The 2% number is a number we've pinned ourselves to. And, but again, that reflects that we do control inflation over the medium term and longer run. So that's my answer to that first question. I think I got what you covered. Um, let's see. The second part was – this is the danger with two questions at once. I've got to remember what the second question was. Oh, ceiling or um, – okay. Um, so I, I think of it as um, what I'd like the average to be over the long run. And um, so I don't think of it as a ceiling. I think if we – and we haven't treated it that way. As I said earlier, inflation's been 4% on a year-over-year basis uh, in early 2008, falls to minus 1%. We've never treat, we, there's no evidence we've treated it as a ceiling, so I don't think of it as a ceiling. Um, you, know, you want people to be able to look ahead and you know, if they're doing retirement planning and their software requires that they put in an inflation assumption, they should be able to go to their central bank and find out what their inflation assumption should be. Yes, sir. I'm going to ask a very basic question. Um, if uh, we've been running a 2% inflation rate for a long period of time, and inflation represents an erosion of the purchasing power of our dollar, why is any inflation good over a long period of time? Great question. You know, and I was reading over my, my notes yesterday, and I thought, somebody's going to ask me this. Uh, somebody's going to ask me this. So it's all right. So um, put yourself in the shoes of somebody choosing a central banker choosing an inflation rate to run forever. You know, just on average forever. Um, so there's there's the problem with low inflation. So the the value of a ze- of setting the target at zero is easy. I mean, in, things don't change over the long run. Your purchasing power doesn't erode. Um, so the disadvantage of zero is, you know, we talked about fluctuations from plus four percent to minus four, minus one percent. So if you take those fluctuations and shift them down by two percent, then you get a minus three at the other side and a plus two or something. Well, the disadvantage that has um, has to do with um, an asymmetry in interest rates around zero. It's really hard to make actual interest rates below zero, and uh, the reason is people can just take money and put it in a shoebox and earn zero. So it's hard to get them to like voluntarily sign up for like negative one or negative two percent interest. <laughs> that makes hmm? Thanks for trying, though. <laughs> exactly. If you guys figured out. Let us know. Um, so that that makes monetary policy different when interest rates get down to zero, like they are now. We have to do things like buy assets, and our ability to push interest rates down is very limited at this point and, and to push the relevant real inflation-adjusted interest rate down. And this is that's the analytics for having – that's the benefit of having a cushion between your inflation rate and zero to make it slightly above zero. 
Um, and uh, central banks around the world have sort of converged on 2%. We realize it does erode purchasing power. But keep in mind that if we say 2%, and if we're able to achieve 2% the way we did over the last two decades, people can take that into account. So if you're um, you know, if you're borrowing in a mortgage, right, you take into account, all right, I'm borrowing at 4%, say, but 2% of that is just compensation for inflation. So the real interest rate is 2%. Or if you're making an investment, you know, you're buying a CD. Maybe that's a bad example now. Um, you know, if in normal times, you know, you're buying a CD, and, you know, or, or making any other investment, you get to compare that rate of return to a sense that your central bank is going to deliver an average over you know five or ten years of three percent two percent inflation you're able to adjust for that and given that then that that the fact that purchasing power is eroding is less of a problem it causes less issues for the economy it's when that it's when that erosion is unpredictable and highly volatile as it was in the 70s that's when the big problems arise so great question very sophisticated audience you guys are getting great marks here one of the questions I have is, is at what point does the Fed printing money and buying federal bonds actually start increasing inflation? That's, got to be a limit that's a good question. And we've been, we've been wrestling with that, and it, it, it's hard to say. There's a, a, a bunch of uh, things that kind of go into the hopper of thinking about that. Uh, so at this point, um, banks are holding a lot of liquid – Reserves, a lot of liquid assets as reserves. Um, they're uh, they're holding balances with us, you know, well over a trillion dollars, but they're also holding um, hundreds of billions of dollars of short-term securities, short-term treasury securities or agency um, debt. And for a bank, those are virtually perfect substitutes. They're all earning about like we're our reserves are paying twenty-five basis points. Uh, short-term securities are all under 25 basis points out to the two-year horizon. So if we if we increase the amount of reserves banks have to hold, they'll just sell that those securities, and it might not make a difference for the economics of banking. It might not force them to lend in a way that increases the the money supply that that that's in the hands of people and 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 uh, consumers and bank and uh, firms. Now, if if we expanded the supply of reserves large enough so that that was the only – that swamped. Every bank's desired reserve holding were nothing but reserves with us. Uh, you know, at that point, if we pushed it beyond that, we could really push bankers into, you know, flooding people with reserves and loans and that could drive inflation up. So it it seems that within the banking system, we're in this little zone where – Maybe it doesn't have much of an effect. And that's you know, one of the reasons why my assessment is that we're unlikely to get much by way of effects from this, this, um, this latest round of quantitative easing. That's the kind of analysis you've got to think through. Um, but there's, some, there's a bunch of caveats that you'd have to take the advanced course to find out about. It's a good question. I, so the um, the discussion in today's paper um, uh, 
had to do with a speech uh, Chairman Bernanke gave at a seminar in Tokyo, jointly sponsored by, I think, the Bank of Japan and um, the IMF, in conjunction with meetings of um, finance ministers and central bankers from around the world this past week in, in Japan. Um, I, the, it's a very short speech, well repays um, the reading, um, and lays out sort of the, sta- the mainstream standard economic case uh, for having to do with the effect of monetary policy on other countries. So, um, so um, the issue has been that the complaint uh, many in the emerging market world have raised about U.S. monetary policy is that by pushing down yields, you know, in the United States or Europe, as the case may be, it's inducing capital flows into emerging markets because it increases the the differential in in yields, so you can you can get better returns. You know, without anything changing, you can get better returns in in emerging markets. Um, so what he points out is that um, those capital flows, well, you know, it sort of depends on what exchange rates do, and in some emerging markets, their their tendency is to resist the resulting appreciation of their currency. See, all that the capital flows going in ought to push up the value of their currency in a way that erases the advantage of the yield differential. Some countries like to resist that, but then, you know, they've, they've got to pay the piper at some point. And, um, you know, he does a good job of explaining why, um, you know, you, 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 need to, you need to take that on board. You need to, you know, it'd be better to sort of accommodate the um the the change in the currency value just to let foreign exchange markets clear um and that the, and then concentrate on the domestic economy and and prevent the inflation from coming into your domestic economy this is getting denser and denser yes Good question. So I, I, I think um, if I had my druthers at this point, we would, um, we would be holding our balance sheet where it is now and being vigilant about the possibility of disinflation, inflation falling below 2%. Several months ago in the second quarter, we, you know, in that dip in employment growth, we also, got a, we also had a fall in the inflation rate. And many were predicting a you know, a, a fairly low inflation rate for the second half of this year and into next year. Now, at this point, it looks like inflation in the second half of this year is going to be about 2%. Um, and so I think that, you know, I think that that fear of disinflation uh, turns out to have been, um, it, it turns out not to have materialized, that disinflation turns out not to have materialized. But I think we should just be vigilant for signs of disinflation. We also need to be vigilant about the possibility of, of inflation rising too high. Now, we, as I said, there are swings in inflation. And you might wonder, well, when inflation gets to 4%, you know, why isn't your hair on fire? Well, um, luckily, we have these um, gauges from market instruments that tell us where 
in general, market participants expect inflation to go. And the times when things like energy price increases have driven inflation up, luckily we've been able to see that people expect that to be temporary and for inflation to trend back down to 2% within a year or so. And that's been true this earlier this year when we had a, an inflation bulge. Um, and it's been true you know, earlier this year when we had um, you know, inflation sag. And I think looking at those indicators is real important. What I'm referring to is the spread between regular U.S. treasuries, nominal treasuries, and TIPS, um, the, the inflation-adjusted um, treasury securities. And you can read off from that what market participants implicitly expect inflation to be. And that's wiggled around a bunch, but it's been fairly stable over the last several years. And that, you know, I think we need to watch carefully for some breakout, some erosion of that credibility of ours. Um, so we're buying mortgage-backed securities now at a pace of $40 billion per month. Um, that's a substantial portion, more than half of the current production of new mortgage-backed securities. As new, mortgage, as new mortgages are made, you know, or refinances are done, they're packaged up and sold. So there's, there's this flow of new production coming to the market. I think the consensus among economists is that the effect – of our asset purchases on the marketplace and on the economy has to do with the stock of them that we are holding at any one time rather than the kind of the flow rate of purchase. Now, the two are related, but, um, you know, the buying a security in this environment with low interest rates is analogous to us cutting interest rates. So every additional increment to the size of our balance sheet increases stimulus the way in normal times when the Fed funds rate was five, a cut to four and a half provides more stimulus. So the continual flow of new purchases is continuing to provide greater and greater stimulus. The stimulus is provided by the stock that we hold, not by the flow of our purchases. Um, So then you asked about unwinding these things. So this is going to be a tricky question. So in any, you know, in any market, there's a kind of a capacity to absorb a flow. We laid out some principles two years ago describing the general sequence and principles um, that we would follow in, in exiting, in unwinding our balance sheet. One of the things is that we'd like to make it predictable. We'd like to be able to tell people, all right, we're going to sell $40 billion a month or 50 or 100 or whatever it is. We'd like to be able to tell them the the problem then so so that they can sort of reorder their portfolios get you know make room for buying some stuff and um, buying some securities that we're going to sell down the road. The problem comes when we if we have to the problem would come if we had to react to emerging economic problems like an increase in inflation. If we had to go faster, then we might have to disappoint those ex- expectations that we raised. So we might find ourselves in a dilemma where. 
you know, we've announced a certain path, but it doesn't look like it's fast enough. We need to withdraw stimulus faster. We need to sell more rapidly where we could be in a real bind. Now, the I have to mention for completeness that I mentioned earlier that we pay 25 basis points on excess bank reserves. We could raise that rate and we could tighten that way. But we've never done this before. We've never paid interest on reserves before October of 2008, November 2008. And we've never been in a tightening cycle where we're doing it by raising the rate on reserves and selling at the same time. We, we're not sure about how the mix ought to work, what the best way to work that mix is. So we're going to be in uncharted territory big time when that, when that time comes. One more? Mm-hmm. Uh, I was wondering how much support you get from your other seven peers, the other seven members of uh, the mm-hmm. Federal Reserve Bank presidents that currently are not those. Good question. I know you get some support. Mm-hmm. Does that make you see it? It does. <laughs> it does. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting. So, um, uh, you know, I, I'm limited about what inside information I can provide about the meeting, but I, I can point you to those minutes I talked about. Now, there's a, there's a terminology used in the minutes about the people in the meeting. Uh, one term is members, and that's used for the 12 voting members. So the 12 voting members are the, the seven members of the Board of Governors, which is the agency in Washington that oversees the 12 reserve banks. And then five members are are drawn on a rotating basis from the 12 reserve bank presidents. And the other seven you referred to are the other reserve bank presidents that aren't voting on this meeting. So I rotate. Every three years I'm a voting member um, and so on. So um, when they're talking about just the voting members, and they do that in a small section at the end, they, they use the word members. For the rest of the minutes, they use the word participants. Participants refers to the group of all 19 principles, the voters and the non-voters. And you can go – so in the, in the section where it's talking about members, um, I, I think they use the phrase all but one on an occasion, <laughs> you know, supported X, you know. Um, so in the section on participants, you can gauge – you can see in there that some had concerns about this, some had concerns about that. So you can see there that – my concerns were shared by some participants who are not members. So, great questions, great audience. Thank you very much. It's great to be here.